Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, where we're going to ancient China. Finally, because we're talking about one of the most extraordinary, iconic, ancient archaeological sites in the whole world. Yes, we are talking all about the Terracotta Army, the Terracotta Warriors, built more than 2,000 years ago as part of a huge mausoleum complex, more than 50 square kilometers in size, constructed for the first emperor of China. So what do we know about the Terracotta Warriors? How were they constructed? Why? What was their purpose in the mausoleum? And could there potentially be an influence from the ancient Mediterranean, from the ancient Hellenistic world? Well, to answer all of these questions and so much more, I was delighted to get on the podcast a few weeks back to chat in person with Dr. Xu Jin Li. Xu Jin is an honorary senior research fellow at UCL, and she's also done a lot of work with the Museum for the Terracotta Army out in China. She is one of the leading experts all about the Terracotta Warriors, with a particular focus on their bronze weapons, on the logistics behind how this huge monumental army was constructed. Now this is going to be a two-part podcast. In this first part we're going to be focusing in, giving an overview, shall we say, of the Terracotta Army, whilst the second part, which we'll release in a few weeks' time, we're really going to delve into the details of the weapons themselves and what these bronze weapons placed among these warriors, what that can tell us about the time, the effort, the logistics behind creating this huge army more than 2,000 years ago. But without further ado, to talk all about the Terracotta Army, a fantastic overview, here's Xu Jin. Xu Jin, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Now, I mean, the Terracotta Army, this is one of the greatest archaeological discoveries, one of the greatest archaeological sites in the whole of the world. Can't think of any site quite like it, can you? It's so unique. Yes, that's the Terracotta Warriors, really unique in China and also in the world. Yeah, so these are life size the Terracotta Warriors, because, like we're talking about other sculptures, because they're made of stone or made other materials, but actually, these life size Terracotta Warriors are made of clay. And also, particularly, this kind of clay only in the Lourdes Plateau in China. Yeah, so that can shape it and also can really sculpture it. So, and then made like these kind of life-size terracotta warriors. First of all, a bit of background. Let's set the scene for the terracotta army first of all. When was the terracotta army constructed? When was it built? So the Turkish warriors were constructed 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago, you know, because these are related to the first emperor. So the first emperor was born in 259 BC, and he unified China, we call it unified China, he established the first empire in China, the Qin Empire, in 221 BC. So the Turkish warriors definitely were buried 
for his afterlife, for himself after he died, you know. So this for his afterlife. So that's kind of roughly about 210, the emperor died. So the Tarakita warriors, we estimate Tarakita warriors probably built roughly that time, a little bit earlier probably. So, so that's like prepare for his afterlife. And just to set the scene, so was this Terracotta army, these soldiers, were they just one small fraction of the huge tomb that was to be built for this emperor of China? Yeah, you are right, because the first emperor actually pursued immortality that time. Yeah, and then he really liked to live longer. And also at the same time, you know, he also had his Muslim constructed. So that's kind of another way, alternative way of pursuing his immortality. So that's like when he became the king, so he was only 13 years old, so he started plan this Muslim. So the Muslim cover about what we call tomb complex, 56 square kilometers. 56 square kilometers, it's absolutely huge. So the Tarakita warriors, the Tarakita army, only small part, yeah, it's a very small part of the whole tomb complex. So how was this, first of all, the discovery of this? Do we know how this Terracotta army, these soldiers were first discovered? Yeah, actually, we're talking about officially discovered because in 1974, in March, in quite uh, in the spring, very dry spring, in that uh, local area, because these local farmers they dug a well, yeah, to get some water, you know, and then, and then they find some pieces of terracotta figures, and also they find some bronze weapons like bronze arrows and then they reported to local archaeological institute and then archaeologists came and find originally because when the archaeologists came here they said oh yeah probably there's several character figures or some piece of pottery or some piece of uh, um, uh, bronze but when they have archaeological survey and also excavation, they were so surprised because these three pages of Tarakan warriors and also estimate about 8,000 warriors there. And so have we uncovered the whole of the Terracotta warriors site or are there still those parts of the site which we haven't yet been able to excavate yet where there might be more of those warriors still to be? Yes, you know, we excavation only small part of the Tarakan warriors because we have ongoing archaeology. But actually, originally in 1970s, we had partial excavation, we call it, yeah, just a small part, one-fifth of P1, so the quite small section of P1. And then we have ongoing archaeology on P3, so that's quite small, 68 Tarakan warriors. And also we had partial excavation after archaeological survey in P2. So that's all together, P1 and P2, P3, so the Tarakan warriors, we only have now still a little bit more than one-fifth excavation, but ongoing archaeology still continue. You mentioned weapons, and I promise we're going to get to the weapons very soon, those bronze weapons. But let's focus on the warriors themselves first of all. You mentioned there are three pits that we'll talk about in a bit, but the design, the style of these warriors, what do we know? Are they very like, between each different figure, can you see differences? Can you see variation in their creation, in their design? Yes, the Tarakan warriors, um, because we carry out many researches on that, studies on that, on the Tarakan warriors, because regionally, so a German historian, and also work on the uh, Tarakan warriors and Chinese archaeology for a long time, uh, yeah, Landros, Professor Landros, uh, but actually Professor Yuan, our former director, probably originally they suppose the Tarakan warriors probably we call mold and sculpture mold first and then sculpture in detail. So that's the Tarakana warriors, the process of, of making the Tarakana warriors. Actually, the detailed sculpture really, so these, each Tarakana warriors were well sculptured individually. So they build each Tarakana warriors individually, you know, there's like from the bottom, the feet, and to the top of the head. So that's really completely individually produced. Not really, some people probably in the website you can see someone supposed to call modular production. That means different types of head, different types of arms, and they assemble it together. That's not the case. 
The case is that really artistic work. And the well sculptured, probably they, they shaped the clay in the first part, and they built the worries just step by step from the bottom to top, and the sculptured in details. So the every terracotta worries have their very unique characters. You know, the eyes, the ears, the facial features, it's quite different from each other. That's amazing. It's so amazing when you consider just the sheer scale of it all. I mean, you mentioned, of course, that this is part of the mausoleum, you know, for this first emperor, but this particular part, these figures, this army, what function were they supposed to have within this huge mausoleum? What do they represent? Yeah, the function is because they're part of the tomb complex, the big first emperor's Muslim complex. And that's also the part of the belief of the first emperor. He believed after life. Actually, he tried to pursue immortality, but at the same time, he believed after life. He think he can, you know, to be immortal and uh, when he died in the other, in the underground empire. So that's the terracotta warriors was built, supposed to protect him in his afterlife. So that's like quite close to his mausoleum, to his coffin chamber. So they're located at the east part of the coffin chamber because the emperor conquered the other six states in the east. So he worried about the enemy coming from east you know, the old enemies, all the spirit or evil spirit. So that's the terracotta warriors located at east and also facing the east and to protect him against the enemy coming from the east. I mean, that's amazing. So how can we gather that information that the reason that they're placed where they are looking east is to protect against potential enemies from the east? Do we have literature like to affirm this or is this mainly from the archaeology? based on the history and the literature, because like the ancient documents recorded, we have that time, you know, historical period, and we have some written documents, and also mentioned because that time, how the location of the Qin kingdom, and also originally expanded into the Qin empire. So that time, you know, we call Warring State Era in China. So there's seven states in central eastern part of China. And the, the Qin kingdom, located at the west, relatively west, but we still call central nowadays. And uh, so the other six states all in the east part. And also they, so that the Qin emperor, the Qin first emperor, so conquered the other six states. So that kind of established the Qin first empire. And also he called himself first emperor. And also the archeological discoveries also show, because like this is kind of location of the Qin Kingdom and the Qin Empire, so that's quite close, modern day Xi'an. So the Terracotta Warriors is buried in Lintong. And then the other six states, also we find other archaeological, we have other archaeological discoveries in other six states as well. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant. I love that mixture of archaeology and literature when it comes together like that. If we go on from that and talking about the Terracotta Army, now we talked about the warriors and how they differ in their designs, but it's not just warriors that are depicted. There are also animals too, aren't there? Because this is quite an interesting part in the Qin First Emperor's Muslim complex. So we also find, you know, because of the big, large quantity of stables, because Qin Empire, Qin Kingdom, originally we call Qin clan, there's a small group located at the western border of that time called Zhou period, and they raised horses for the Zhou dynasty, so the early dynasty before Qin dynasty, so that's for the Zhou king, so they raised horses because they, at the western part, they have pastures for the horse raising, so that's kind of, they have large quantity of stables that time. And also one of the reasons for Qin conquered the other states because the cavalry, they have a cavalry because they have horses and also they have uh, powerful crossbows. Yeah, so that's kind of part of his history. And also when the emperor died, emperor tried to bring everything to his afterlife. And horses is very important part for the emperor's life, for the, for the Qin Empire. So we find the, the stable horses. 
horses that we have we found the terracotta horses you know in the terracotta army so they have a chariot horses and also they have a cavalry horses and at the same time we also find lots of horse skeletons real horses were buried in the muslim in the whole muslim complex that is so interesting when you compare it to other ancient cultures like we did one a few weeks a few months ago about the Sarka culture in kazakhstan eastern kazakhstan and their horse burials along with their elite figures and it seems like this is, as you say, a similar thing. We have the horses depicted in the terracotta army, but as you say, there are real-life horses buried there too. Is this very much an elite status symbol, heralding back to the Qin heritage, shall we say, their close association with cavalry? Yes, we're talking about that. It's a big story because, like, Qin uh, Empire, so the rise of the Qin Empire, because Qin is located at the west, they have uh, connections with the surrounding Eurasia steppe. You know, the, the nomad, so the people they raise horses, and also Qin is linked with you know that time Hongs Xiongnu we call you know, and they uh, expertise on horses, and also another that's like a kind of nomadic group. So that's why Qin have their very good cavalries. And also in the eastern part, so we're talking about the horses in the other six states, because the environmental, the environmental uh, reasons, because they don't have uh, enough pastures, because the agriculture in the center part, in the eastern part, farming land, so they cannot, you know, have a good horses for them. And the Qin that's located west, they have a pasture, but it, apart from farming land, they also have a pastures, and they also have a grasses for horses. So that's make the Qin getting stronger with the cavalry, with the chariots on the warfare, you know, so that kind of strong military power, so conquer the other states, yeah. It's so interesting, that, that, that heritage, as you said, they bring it forwards. So if we talk a bit more about the Terracotta army before delving into the weapons themselves, one thing I'd love to ask about, you mentioned that there were three pits and these various styles of warriors, so let's go through them. If you wouldn't mind giving us an overview of what, what sorts of figures were in each pit. So if we start with pit one, what sorts of figures can we find in pit one? Uh, in pit one, they're mainly infantry. So we find pit one, that is the biggest in the other three uh, pits. And also that's early discovered in 1970s. So, and they start to excavate it and find, so because they have 11 corridors, we call 11 corridors, that's 11, uh, you know, lines in the each corridor. But each corridor have a four lines in the, in the uh, group. So, and this is mainly infantry and also with a chariot in the middle of the infantry. But in the front row, have a three rows of crossbowmen. So that's three rows facing to the east. So they all have these figures, have a crossbows. You know, we find crossbow triggers there and also the arrows. So that's crossbowmen. But in the middle part, so that's, that's all infantry and the chariots. So that kind of battle formation, so we're talking about in Qin time, so the, the military um, array and also how the military strategy that time. So we're talking about this infantry that's its um, main part for this military troop and with the chariot, with the crossbowmen in front, at the back, in front and also at the back and also the side the two sides, so and, and that's like a surrounding, so that's like a square surrounding infantry, so with all these crossbowmen. So that kind of when the troops, they come um, a little bit far distance and the crossbowmen release the arrows to the enemy. And when they close enough, so the older crossbowmen will go move away and the infantry they will have a close combat. So that's the warfare at that time. So interesting. So and no doubt we're going to get back to this once again when we get to the weapons, but it's almost as if this is very much, they are deployed from pit one, and we'll probably see in the other pits as well, as if they are in battle formation. Yeah, that's a real battle formation. So that's kind of, um, you know, they arranged, you know, like really 
in the war in the battlefield. So how these troops moving forward and how these two, you know, two troops they fighting together. So they have a long distance arrows, you know, uh, triggers and, and uh, released arrows to the enemy. And also when they come close, how they have a close combat. So and also they have a different weapons really equipped um, for the different function. We'll get to those weapons in a bit, as mentioned. But pit two, pit two, Shujin, what is in pit two? Yeah, P2 is combination. So in P2, so let's have a chariot, you know, the eight rows of chariots, and also each row have eight chariots. So that's like 64 chariots. So big, we call chariots formation. So that kind of also military array in the Qin Dynasty. And the chariots, so also quite important part for their warfare. And also they have a cavalry. So cavalry, that's very important part for the Qin, you know, they troops and they they well trained because from the historical records uh, you know because the chariots and also the cavalry they both they were both need well trained and uh, also they have kind of also crossbowmen and also archers they kind of section so this section in the right corner you know in the front corner and also the same as the, the first military array P1, so they also the same long distance release arrows to the enemy. And then after that, the, the crossbowmen moving to the back, and they have cavalry and chariots moving. They mixed uh, these cavalry, chariots, and also small part of infantry, because they will rotate it like that and to change to the cavalry and the chariot. So that kind of mainly focus on the P1 infantry, mainly infantry, and P2 chariots and the cavalry. But they both have a crossbowman. So when the enemy are coming closer, because from the long distance, they will start to release the arrows to the enemy, and then they have a close combat. Different strategy. Different strategy indeed. I mean, we've talked about chariots before on the podcast, focusing in on the Egyptians and Hittites, Roman, Iron Age. We did a little bit on Chinese chariots, but is it with Chinese chariots? And could you see from the Terracotta army, are they the ones which have these huge wheels which made them able to go on various types of terrain? No, not, not huge wheels. So that seems quite different. We're talking about, originally talking about chariots, probably really with the horses, they coming from the Eurasia steppe because it is to central China. And also in central China, it's from probably Shang dynasties, like uh, roughly about 1500 BC. So that's kind of, we start to have chariots and horses, but, and then to the Qin dynasty. So that's like this 200 BC. So, and this time, 300 BC, and this time, so the chariot, revolutionized the change you know to fit in the uh, in the central china how they the the, the warfares so they have their own design kind of for the chariots because they roughly have a four horses and have a wooden chariot back, but the wheel is not too big but we call have a single shaft single big single shaft and with four horses in front and so that's normally in the chariot have three terracotta figures, one is charioteer, and the other two that's called left and right. <laughs> so they're two warriors, and they can fight in on the different directions. Yeah. Okay, so a three-man team, as it were, for each chariot. Yeah, sometimes have a four. Sometimes four because one is like official officials, you know, like kind of generals on the top of the chariot. I mean, actually, I guess, talking about officials, generals and commanders, do we see that? Is the king or emperor himself portrayed in the terracotta army, or is he not at all? Is it more just his army and his subordinates? We don't think that, uh, yeah, the, the emperor, like I know in, in other empires, so it seems different because I think the Qin first emperor not really involved in chariot in charity or the cavalry yeah but probably he, he really rides on the horses but actually not uh, involved in this you know target army but actually his tomb his coffin chamber quite close but definitely he was the real commander yeah quite right i could ask so many questions but let's keep going on to pit three pit three what is in pit three 
Yeah, Petri we call headquarters. So Petri is quite smaller, the smallest one in this uh, three pits. Petri, um, so they only have uh, 68 target warriors, but the P3 was seriously damaged because due to um, probably the quite deep and also probably shortly after the Qin Empire, because Qin Empire is quite short, only 15 years. And then after that, the farmers rebellion so came into the Muslim complex. And probably at that time, so the target worries was damaged. So when we excavate P3, it shows the all P3, so the target figures, they all wear armors, so that's kind of armor well protected. But we couldn't find the heads, many the missing heads. Yeah, so when we excavated, but actually they have one chariot, 68 warriors, one chariot. But also in this section, so these uh, all warriors probably officials, because they stand face to face, stand uh, not really facing to the east, but they stand like a circle to talking, to discuss how they carry out this is military, of, you know. Strategies, some kind of strategy. That kind of, we're talking about this real headquarter. And also we found the animal bones, so that's the deer horn in that pit. So normally, because before the warfare in China, they have a kind of superstition, they need to worship the god, you know, or ancestors, you know, with animals, with animal head or animal bones, and to protect them to win the battle, to win the warfare. So that kind of normally in this happened in the headquarter. So that means this really headquarter for discussion, the military strategy, and also at the same time to worship the God, to protect them, to win the war. As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Is that one of those 
as important, yeah, those high up in the army duties which were needed before, like the council of war, the sacrifice, I don't know if it was sacrifices or not, sacrifices, making sure that the gods were on your side if you're going to war against that particular people. That's also interesting with pit one, two and three, so thank you for explaining all of that. A couple more questions before we really move on. The first is, of course, armour. Now, the armour of these figures, what, what do we know about the armour? How are they depicted with armour, these terracotta warriors? Yeah, the terracotta warriors, because in the Qin Dynasty, so they mainly used the functional armour that was leather because they produce, you know, they're made of leather. We have the historical records, you know, in the written history. So talking about because they collect all these different kinds of leathers and how they produce armors, the cut in the pieces, how they link them together with kinds of linen threads, you know, to link the armor together. And at the same time, so in the Qin Dynasty, they started to have iron armor but actually not too popular because leather armor is quite popular at that time and also we have we find a large quantity of called bamboo sleeves bamboo sleeves they have all the chin the character written characters on top and also they mentioned sometimes a kind of a punishment you know people like uh, they have uh, some uh, guilty or they they made some mistakes and then the government will force them to make armor to contribute to the military troop. So that kind of Qin society, how they manage. So that means the functional armor that mainly they use, the armor made of leather. And they have sometimes have iron armor. Because we have one general find in the target army. The general, because the armor is quite different from other warriors and other officials because the armor the quite small scale they fixed together and also they have top have a decorations so it shows probably the iron armor so depict iron armor but for the common soldiers for the common warriors so they wear leather armor it's so interesting and i love bringing up these parallels of like ancient greece and ancient rome at the time in ancient greece especially where you have so many soldiers who aren't wearing metal armor, they're also wearing leather such as the linothorax or just not much armor at all. It's so interesting, you see the parallels, the higher echelons, they have more metal, shall we say. I mean, I guess the other thing I'd love to ask, keeping on that ancient Greece Rome link, is that we're quite at pains today to highlight how, you know, these fascinating statues that you see of ancient Greece and Rome, they would have been painted, the statues, the altars, and everything there would have been painted, there would have been colors everywhere. Can we imagine the same with the terracotta army? Would there have been colours everywhere with these warriors? Yes, you know, the, all these terracotta warriors originally all well painted, very colourful, because they all very bright red, bright blue, green, purple. So that's why, you know, when I work in uh, P3 and P2, P, mainly P3, so that's 1990s, so uh, when we excavate Petrie, because this uh, buried quite deep and some colors well uh, protected, well preserved, because they need moisture and temperature. But actually when we excavated, temperature and moisture changed. So the color will quickly fade it or peeling off. So feel a little bit regret because when we excavated, when we left the target worries, we were so surprised that time. I was so surprised because see the very bright color, some of the bright colors still on the target body, but some of the color, they stick to the soil because these pigments is after 2000 years, they're getting old, you know, the peeling off from the target body. Because the target warriors originally when they baked, after fire, they painted, they need some bonding agent, we call bonding agent, so put a layer of lacquer, that's kind of a sticky, and then pigment. So after 2000 years, the lacquer became old. So they easily to shrink, to peeling off from the target body. So that's the color because when 1970s, we excavated pit one, so the color not well preserved, even the pit one also were burned, you know, were fire before. So that kind of some of the, and also the damage because they buried for a long time. When P3 excavated, really the color, we find very bright color, but actually some faded quickly 
after exposed the, the temperature, the temperature and the moisture change. We work with Germany for 20 years cooperation, trying to find a solution to preserve the color on the terracotta surface. So we really have achievement, but now we have kind of, you know, some of the really well-preserved the storage and they put some still well-preserved colorful uh, terracotta worries in that and with uh, temperature and moisture control. So that we still can see, but in that small storage, we still can see some colorful terracotta worries. Uh, that's brilliant. It's really nice to hear that. And did you say lacquer? Was lacquer one of the key things? Because that's one thing like we sometimes don't really focus on, especially over here, the lacquer wares and how important these things were in ancient China, weren't they? And we sometimes see them in the bedroom hordes, but we rarely see them further west kind of thing. But should we also imagine like these lacquer wares, this style of pottery, can we imagine that that would have been all around that area of the terracotta warriors, the mausoleum at that time too? Yeah, that's uh, talking about lacquer. It's quite a fascinating part of probably uh, invention in early China. So the lacquer in Qin time, um, Qin dynasty, so Qin kingdom, they start to use lacquer, but the very um, you know good at to use lacquer at that time is the true state. The other state that's in southern part along Yangtze River. So that cause they made a lot of lacquer wares. But after the Qin unification, actually Qin took uh, their technology <laughs> of using lacquer, lacquer wares, you know, because also uh, shortly after Han Dynasty, Qin Dynasty and Han Dynasty, they have lots of lacquer wares. And they also have kind of, can be used as a bonding agent, because like the terracotta worries, they put lacquer there, so that means bonding agent between the terracotta body and also the pigment. So there's kind of another, not only for decoration, that served as bonding agent. The lacquer definitely used lacquerware sometimes as well. So that's like they painted on the surface of wood, the well-preserved wood, you know, because the uh, wood or bamboo, they color with, uh, with this lacquer. And also they, they can mix different color of lacquer, so that's quite decorative. But they use this for the target worries, that's mainly for their quite sticky and for their bonding the pigments under the body. I love that, love that. But, okay, enough, enough about lacquer and our tangent on lacquer. Let's go back to terracotta warriors then, and I'd love to talk a bit now about the influence, the inspiration for the terracotta warriors, because what could well have influenced the construction of the terracotta army in the way that it is? Yeah, we're talking about terracotta worries. So that's originally we, you mentioned also, I mentioned as well, because the terracotta worries, how unique the terracotta worries, because this is unique in China and also unique in the world. So when we're talking about influence, because we're talking about the Silk Road, and also we're talking about pre-Silk Road, because the Silk Road, we're talking about mainly Han Dynasty with Rome, so because they have a long distance trade route, and also the Silk will, you know, went to the West and also the kind of communication. But before that, they still probably have some communications between East and West, also because particularly Central Asia, and also particularly China, that time China with the Eurasia step. So what I like to talk about, because China, we're talking about Central China, so they are not isolated. They were not isolated before, you know, because they have lots of communications with surrounding group, nomadic group, or surrounding other group, like what I mentioned, Xiongnu, other group in Central Asia, we have a record or some no record. Because for the archaeologist, archaeological perspective, so we're talking about, you know, millet and barley, how they originally, between the two, between the Eurasia continent, how they influenced from East, West, and, and also talking about animals, horses, and also the target of worry themselves. But actually, we're talking about they, you know, probably have some communications or interactions 
all inspirations. That's what, what I mentioned before, because we talking about Qin Dynasty, the first emperor. So he went to the West to meet a twelve giant people, and also, but these people definitely for us. That's probably quite exotic, you know, because from probably Central Asia, uh, Eurasia step, or probably a little bit further, because that's Hellenistic period, you know, after ancient Greece. But we're talking about influence. They probably really that's what I talk have some inspirations, probably really link to the Hellenistic world, but. We're talking about the Tarakan warriors, that's quite local, that's quite unique, because the clay is local clay. And also, all the Tarakan warriors, they have some people we call artisans or artist name on the back of the Tarakan warriors, because they normally, when people produce, you know, create these Tarakan warriors, they mark their names there. So, and also, which pottery, which workshop they belong. And also the sculptures, the detailed sculptures, and they also carved on the surface. It's quite unique, created with local Lurs soil. You know, that's from the Lurs plateau. We're talking the unique because only this Lurs plateau, because in ancient China or in China now, because this Lurs plateau, we can create it, the room, because if you cut through the earth, you can create it. So the room, people can live inside, the houses they build. So because they have typically very special clay, that clay can shape it and also can be sculptured. Because some, if the soil with too much sand or quite loose, so you cannot create such kind of tactile worries, you know, with also that's quite smooth body and also detailed facial features. So we're talking about possible inspirations, but actually this quite local produced. The resources is local, the soil is local, and also this local concept because the afterlife. The Qin Emperor thinking about pursued immortality and at the same time he believed afterlife. And also that's the Chinese artisans or artists create character worries with a local clay and also fit in the Chinese traditional concepts. So that's unique of Chinese character worries, but actually possible inspiration, but this made totally locally. I mean, absolutely, that local, this local creation, as you say, I love that possible influence, Hellenistic influence as well. And it's quite interesting to think, isn't it, as you say, at this time period where you do have in modern-day Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, you have a Greco-Bactrian kingdom, you have, these, you have these little Hellenistic hallmarks in northwestern India, Pakistan as well. So you, could, you can understand, can't you, that these statues that might have been gotten to Afghanistan by that point then it could have been passed on some of that, you know. People could have seen them and then travelled further, further east to China. So it is wonderful to think about, you know, that potential influence, but as you say, combined with a very unique local creation. It's a wonderful idea, the mix of the local and the influence from the other end of the continent. You know, some 2,000 years ago, I mean, it blows your mind, doesn't it? Yes, thinking about probably that time, the communication between the Central Asia and China, so really beyond what we imagined. We think about, because it's very much natural barriers, because of the desert, the mountains, they're really difficult. Thinking about that time, no airplane, you know, not traffic light today, so we have cars, trains. So probably that's really difficult, but they still have a possibilities. We have uh, so many uh, archaeologists or researchers, like we have Chinese called Duan Qingbo, and uh, he researched on the connections between ancient Persia and also the Qin Empire. So that's kind of connections, possible connections. And also, uh, I think Lucas Nicol uh, published a paper about this link. But actually for us, we nowadays we're talking this, but we really find some sculptures in modern day Xinjiang. So that's 
the disposable and also the coins of let's call it Hollandese coins that time and in um, in Xinjiang part. So it's possibility and also some possible inspiration and also but but this creation really really unique in China. It absolutely is. I mean, this has been brilliant, a great overview of the Terracotta Army so far, but one question I've now got to ask. Considering how huge this mausoleum complex is, I mean, how much more do we still have to learn about the Terracotta Army in general? And then I guess also its position within the huge mausoleum. Yeah, Terracotta worries really, I think they still have rich information probably need archaeologists and historians to extract from them you know because we this is a fit in the big Muslim complex and also I'm thinking about another book in Chinese like kind of real battle formation because you're thinking about ancient warfares ancient you know military strategies but cannot be survive a real battle formation there because with the target worries and also weapons so you can go through from the target worries, so to see that one perspective, the military strategy. But thinking about the target worries stand there, that's, you know, that's life size and also that's kind of realistic sculptures. And you also can, from there to talking about, because the dresses in the Qin Dynasty and also the armors, like what, what I mentioned, and the weapons, also from their back, we can talking about because the clay, because the pottery that time, how they made of ceramic and the behind is the ceramic production, you know, because the Qin society and also talking about bronze weapons and resources of the Qin society. So that's lots of information cover different perspective, different aspects from the Qin society. So they're really, we're talking about this from Terracotta Boris. We can see through to see the society, the people, the craftsman's behavior, the administrator's behavior, and also like the people involved, other people, laborers involved in this, you know, from the transportation, from the workshop to the place, and how the people's behavior. Thinking about the quite vivid, the scenery, the scenario of this construction. The logistics behind creating such a monumental thing, isn't it? Which I guess it must have taken years, if not decades, to complete. I mean, how long do we think it actually took to complete the... Well, I guess on the one hand, the Terracotta Army, and on the other hand, the mausoleum as a whole. Yeah, so the Muslim, you know, if based on the historical historical records, Shiji we mentioned, it took roughly about 40 years because the emperor, when emperor went to the throne, when he was 13, and he started to build this, his Muslim, and also probably that time he planned, and with the minister, we call Minister Li Boy that time, the early minister, but actually, we probably the after the mainly construction, the main construction probably after the unification, because we found some Muslim builders tombs, the cemetery of the Muslim builders. So and they, some of the Muslim builders they have a piece of we call epitaph, you know, the kind of small piece of pottery, and with the person's name and where it come from and uh, why come from here. So like the reason, like it's a kind of small biography, you know, because it's a kind of, yeah, yeah, small bell. And also they have kind of talking about the person, where I come from and why, because like some of them, so like on government debts and came here for the, to join the big project, the construction, and instead of paying off the debts to the government. So that kind of information, and also mentioned the people coming from the east, you know, the other six states. So that means the Muslim construction probably mainly after unification, because there's not only the, the laborers coming from the Qin state, they're coming from the empire. Empire is the unified, other, after unified six states. So that means probably main construction so after unification, probably within 10 years after 
221 unification, and the emperor died 210, probably mainly between this time period. So many more questions I could ask about this, but you mentioned the craftspeople and the logistics behind that. We're going to be talking about the weapons, but we're going to wrap up this episode and we're going to save that for part two. So what I'm going to say now, Xu Jin, is thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Xu Jin Li giving a fantastic overview of the Terracotta Army, the Terracotta Warriors. If you want to learn more, then don't worry, because as mentioned at the end of that episode, we're going to be releasing a second part with Xu Jin in due course, where we focus in on the bronze weapons that these warriors were holding, the various types of weapons, and what that can tell us about, on the one hand, ancient Qin armies and how they were deployed, but also about the logistics, about the huge scale operation, you know, the various workshops required to construct such a huge archaeological wonder as a small part of the monumental, the ginormous mausoleum for this first Chinese emperor. That's all still to come, so don't you worry coming in the weeks ahead. Now, if you want more Ancients content in the meantime, you can, of course, subscribe to our weekly Ancients newsletter via a link in the description below. Every week I write a little blurb for that newsletter now, giving you little insights into what we've been doing at Ancient History Hit that week, who we've been interviewing, what things have happened in ancient history, for instance, the discovery of something that's been labelled the most important piece of prehistoric art found in the UK in the past 100 years. That was discovered this week. Of course, we talk about that. But if you want other stuff as well, little hints as to what we're going to be covering next, then that newsletter is the thing for you. Alongside that, if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from, that would be greatly appreciated as it helps us grow the ancient audience, spread the ancient history love even further. P.S. My book is still newly released. It is recently out. If the Wars of Alexander's successes are of interest to you, then why not give that a browse? Why not consider buying that for someone's birthday coming up, you know, to fulfill that essential Wars of the Successors, early Hellenistic period, ancient history itch that you probably didn't know you have, but you will have soon. That's enough rambling from me. I will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.